0: and uh, spend some time in Jude, verse number 2 today. We're moving at a breakneck speed through this book. This is sermon number 6, and we made it to verse 2. So, put on your seatbelts. We're really moving. Lord, we have your word in front of us right now, and what a precious, precious privilege it is. May we make good use of our time. We know, Lord, that uh, so much in this world wants to occupy our time, our thoughts, and our energy, and all that we have. We we spend those throughout the week in a lot of different ways. Right now, we have the privilege of spending it solely in the study of your word. and I pray that the distractions will be left behind, and the concerns for the day and the week ahead, that we will just turn our eyes upon Jesus. That we will look into this word, we will study from it, and see how you have blessed us again. We know that you lift us up, because that's what your word does. So as we approach it here this morning, we pray your blessing upon it. Lord, do your work in our hearts, we pray today. And thank you for the privilege of spending this time with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Verse number two, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. That sounds easy, doesn't it? On the surface, a little phrase like that looks very much like something written by the Apostle Paul, or Peter, or one of the others, James maybe. The way they like to start their epistles We say, oh yeah, we've seen that so many times. And we want to get right to the main point, so generally we just read that and say, okay, let's move on. Let's get to the the big stuff here. But I want to suggest to you that to bypass verse 2 is to bypass the main thing. It's very important that we see the value of a little verse like this. God did not accidentally have this put in His Word. He did it on purpose, didn't He? We believe that, and so we're going to study it on purpose, because it has great, great value to us. I know it's, studied like it's like going into a recipe and seeing flour, eggs, and water, and you say, well, everybody knows what that is. You don't study it. You just do it. We're going to study it today. All right? These three words are precious, precious words to us, and I want to work through it with you, because what we have done in verse number one already... It's talked about who we are because of Jesus Christ. Verse number one is our identity as a believer. Being called ones, which it says to those who are called, and you as a called one in Jesus Christ can claim that. He wasn't just saying only people in his day and age were called ones. And he didn't say only people that received this book when it was right off the press were those who he addressed alone. Being a believer, you could claim these verses. He didn't say it was the called ones of uh, Macedonia or the called ones of Ephesus, or you could claim it because it doesn't have any other title, but called ones. And if you're a believer in Christ, guess what? you are. You're a called one. So take it for yourself. You ready? To those who are called, called ones, we have learned from last week and the week before, using the New American Standard Version first, that we are perfectly completely permanently loved by god i love that that's very great encouraging let me ask you this is it going to change no no it will not change that's the tenor of the of the the verbs that are used in this but it's also the character of our god he doesn't change i like that So we are perfectly, permanently, completely loved. We are also, according to the King James Version, I used both in there because I had different words, we are perfectly, completely, permanently sanctified by God. That also is true. Set apart for a purpose. I'll add one more phrase to that. Set apart totally for a purpose. Because that's the way God works. We're set apart for him, right? Is that going to change? No. We hesitated for some reason. Uh, No, it won't. That's the way God wrote it. He said, this is what you are. You are saints by calling. It says that in scripture too. You have been called, sanctified by him. And good news about that, it stays that way. Doesn't change. That's very important for us to know. Matter of fact, that is an incredible motivation to live a Christian life. Because sanctification is what we need to practice every single day. I don't know if you've noticed that. But it is one heavy thing. i also say this, just a side note. It's not in my notes, but this is interesting. In the present theological discussions in churches that are somewhat dispensational and such... Sanctification is getting a back seat. And it's bothering me. It is bothering me that they are pushing it back further and further and further away from what we're supposed to be doing. And I don't know why. I haven't got down to the source of that yet. But I've had conversations with people and I've noticed it in current trends in theology today. In circles like ours, believe it or not, sanctification is being pushed aside. That bothers me. Because that's everyday living, folks. God has set us apart for a purpose. And if we don't maintain that purpose in our hearts and in our minds, how are we ever going to live it in this world? We're called to that. You are called to that. You've been sanctified by the Lord. So understand it and live it. That's Okay, there's a sermon inside a sermon. But that's what I... I just get passionate when I read these things and then I see what's going on and I say... We've got to be careful. That one is being pushed away. Maybe it's because people don't know what it means. Set apart for a purpose. God has chosen you on purpose for a reason, right? Yes, that's important. Okay, those two things are true. The third one is you are perfectly, completely, permanently kept by God. Kept. He will never let go of you. not that beautiful to hear? Is that going to change? No, it certainly will not. This little set, these three words, are a powerful description of you as a believer in Jesus Christ. Three things that we really ought to keep in the forefront of our minds. As called ones, we are loved, we are sanctified, and we're kept forever. And I don't hesitate to use that word forever. I like that word forever. Let me give you another Set. This one is in my notes, by the way. Hebrews chapter seven. Keep your bookmark there for a minute. Back over to Hebrews chapter number seven. A set of some of my favorite verses. Verse twenty-four. Sorry, I didn't tell you that, did I? Anthony's not here to harass with that. Him and his little buttons that he pushes. Hebrews chapter seven twenty-four. The book of Hebrews says here in verse number 24 that Jesus is our high priest. No, that's a great study. Excellent study. You need to spend time in the book of Hebrews. It says, but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. That's why it reads in the New American Standard Version. You have similar words and other translations. But when is he going to be out of a job? Never. Anybody going to replace him? No. Alright. He stays our high priest forever. Got that part? Watch what happens in verse 25. Since he holds that position forever, therefore, he is able, I love those words, he is able to save forever, or to the utmost. Those who draw near to God through him, since, He always lives to make intercession for them. You see how it just became personal? The victory cry of resurrection morning is that he is alive, right? You know, that's coming up. Easter is not that far away. The victory cry of the believer is that he has saved me forever. That's my victory. He has saved me forever. The only danger is if he should not live forever. Then we would not be saved forever. Do you see what Hebrews just told you? How long is he going to live? How long is he going to keep you? Isn't that beautiful? Oh, I love it. I love it. I told you last week, this is really, folks, where your theology is built. It's another wonderful He is able passage, isn't it? He is able. He is able. He is able. That's exactly what we speak of when we look at the rest of these things. See, salvation is not purchased by me. It's not maintained by me. If He saved me, then He can save me forever. If I saved me, It would never work. That's just the reality of it. It wouldn't be sufficient, and it wouldn't last. But my salvation is not based on me. It's based on Him. And He lives forever. And because of that, He's able to save me forever. Oh, I love it. So, when I am describing something to you like, this is a powerful description of you as a believer, that you are loved that you are sanctified, that you are kept forever. I'm not afraid to use that word forever. Because that identifies what God has said about you and me. I don't want to lose track of that. And I want us to know this thing. Because apart from what God has said, what hope would we have? How would we live if we didn't know these truths? These are things that God has said. And they're inseparable from what we're studying in Jude, especially when we get to that last couple of verses. We saw it in the first place, but now we come back. He is able, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all times, and now and forever. And he says an amen to that. And I think that's a great place to put it. God is able. He's able to keep us from falling. He's able to make us stand in the presence of His glory. And I can't wait for that moment. But wow, what a moment that will be. When you stand there and you're blameless before Him, you can stand there If it wasn't for Christ, we would cower. We would say, give me a crack. I want to crawl into it. Get me out of here. I can't stand the presence of His glory. But as a believer in Christ, we can't wait to see Him. We can't wait to see Him. We're standing there with joy. Oh, I love it. And we'll praise His name. Because He did it. The overwhelming evidence of Scripture is that God has already placed us as believers in these spiritual realities. That we're looking at in verse number 1, especially of the book of Jude. He's already working right now to cause us to grow in them. Ultimately, when we are in his presence, we shall see that which he has done all along. That's going to be great. I take, personally, I take great comfort in resting upon his ability and not my own when I read these words. Now you say, but Pastor, you've been saying about the same thing every week. Yes, I have. Why? Because we go out Monday morning and we act like some of this isn't true. Oh, not we. You know, we, those other people. Right? Right? Who don't learn from Scripture, and they don't apply it, and don't live it. But if you have spent any time throughout the week reflecting on these things, your soul's been lifted up, hasn't it been? You've been looking at this world through a new set of eyes, haven't you? There's a lot of struggles out there. Isn't it great to know what stays? Yes. So I keep reinforcing that, and I'm going to keep doing that, because it's important to keep track of your identity, Everything else in this world will tell you the opposite. Circumstances, pressures, temptation, society. Do you realize that the whole world system is against you as a believer in Christ? It's against you. It calls God's word untrue. It states that Alone, it is the reality. And you must operate your day according to the course of this world. That's what they want you to do. That's what they want you to believe. You're to operate according to the prince or the power of the air. You're to operate according to the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. You know where I got that from? No, it wasn't your newspaper. Ephesians chapter 2. It's like the ink is still wet. This is a world that wants you to live in the lust of the flesh. Have you noticed? This is a world that wants you to indulge in the desires of the flesh. It wants you to behave like a child of wrath. You've all seen that before. But I've never seen it so in the face as it is right now. I don't have to convince you, I don't think, that you live in an ungodly world. That's where we operate. That does not change your identity in Jesus Christ. This world cannot change who you are in Christ. That's why I reinforce it, because it's trying to tell you the opposite. I'm almost ready for a doxology right there. Judah's a pretty good one, doesn't he? In the midst of all that, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand. it's, It's not because of us, it's because of him. And God is able. And he's always able. He's able right now and he will be able all week long, folks. Never once did it say he was able and it's done. He might be able. He will be able. He should be able. But God is able. That's our theme. So what does that have to do with verse 2? What does it have to do? May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. This little phrase. I told you we're not going to bypass it because it is the main point related to who we are. It's what we have. It's what we have. Verse one is who we are, our identity. Verse two is what we have. Now, my outline is really simple today. Three words one desire, many uses. Right? Three words, one desire. Many uses. Let's look at the three words. You've seen them a billion times, no doubt. I don't know if billion is right. McDonald's could claim high numbers, so can we. Mercy, peace, love. Mercy, peace, love. You already know the scripture is packed full with these words. I don't know if there's any page anywhere you are open up to, and not one of those three words might be on the page. We have seen them, we have tasted them, we have defined them, we have practiced them, we rejoice over them, and I think you would agree, they are indispensable in the Christian life. They're a part of it, aren't they? A big part of it. Let's just take a minute this morning and talk about what we have. These three things you have. All right? Take mercy. Put it right there in your hand. You got it. Elios, the Greek word, means pity, compassion. We use the word mercy a lot, pity. Mercy in a time of wretchedness. One commentary says, well, mercy then stands first. Because guess how we're found? Wretched. Mercy is divine pity expressing itself in help for the needy. Mercy presupposes need and helplessness. That's why even when you drive down the road and you see somebody all broken down on the side of the road, doesn't it tempt you to stop and help? Sometimes then you stop and think, should I? I hate a world that operates like this, but it used to be. If you broke down, somebody was always willing to help you out. I was in Brazil. I was with uh, another missionary friend of mine. Before I went to be with Al, we were in his pickup truck. He picked me up at the airport in a pickup truck that had mattresses stacked in the back of it. There must have been 20 or so mattresses, all piled up, way up above the truck. Just looked like uh, an incredible view. One of those uh, sights that you see coming down the road. All right. Well, they were taking him to a camp. He was and. So he said, I hope you don't mind. We're we're dropping these off at the camp. And I said, well, that's fine. So I get in the truck next to him, and we're driving down the road. And we're not that far on one of the highways there. And uh, he's watching his mirror, and he's thinking, you know, I'm not too confident in that tie. I think I'm going to pull over and tie it tighter. And he started to pull off the road. And as he's pulling off the road, he looks in his mirror again, and then he shoots back up onto the road and keeps going. I said, what happened? He says, oh, the guy behind me was stopping. I said, okay. He says, and he was going to rob us. Because that's what they do. He said, it was always that way. As far as his, he said, one poor missionary family of theirs pulled off the road to fix something. The guy stopped to rob them. Almost like, well, that's the thing to do. Let me let me just do my part in society and rob you. So he robbed him and took everything and drove off. And just as he drove off, the next car pulled over to rob him. And he's like, well, I'm sorry, but I got you first. And off they went. It's just like, to me, it's like, well, you know, that's kind of stressful. <laughs> we would think somebody pulls off the road, help them. Society's changed. So what is this Mercy. I guess it might be the very first thing you learned about God at the time of your salvation. At least if you heard it this way, the gospel presentation starts with the word sin. Right? Because that's where we all start. Because we need salvation. You don't rescue somebody that doesn't need help, do you? matter of fact, they might not like it. I told you this story once before, years ago, I'm sure. My dad, you I talked about his Jeep before, uh, in our Christmas, uh, little Eve thing, his big old Jeep. He'd drive that to work, and one winter he's driving it to work, and, and the car in front of him was sitting at the stoplight, not moving. And uh, he thought that the person was waving him forward to help. So he got his Jeep right up on the back of that car and pushed it clear through the intersection, way up to the thing. Got out, and the lady didn't mean that at all. She said, "Go around," <laughs> and he took that to be push, and so he did. Now, if you don't need save from your sin, you don't need help. But that's the that's the thing about sin, isn't it? Sin is devastating. You know that. Sin destroys us. It slays us. The wages of sin is death. Scripture makes that clear. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Why do we start the gospel message with such a horrible thing? Because that's the thing we're in. And that's the thing we need to save from. Sin. We were hopeless. Scripture says. We were helpless, Scripture says. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And how much can you do in that state? Nothing. We did walk according to the course of this world. We did walk according to the prince of the power of the air. We did walk as children of wrath. We were there, indulging in the lust and in the desires of the flesh. We were, by nature, children of wrath. Scripture says we were enemies with God. We were worthy of being cast out of his presence forever in eternal torment. Our minds and our conscience were filthy. Our actions and our desires were evil. Even the best thing that we could prop up as an attempt to suggest some semblance of righteousness was viewed by God as a filthy rag. It couldn't have been worse. You know it. And God saw it. Rather than step on us and squish us like some detestable thing, Scripture says, but God, being rich in mercy, mercy, he saw us when we were at the worst. Because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him. And he seated us up with him him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Mercy was the first thing that came your way. And you were in such a hopeless place. It's divine pity expressing itself in help for the needy. It presupposes need and helplessness. You know, that God ever looked upon any of us with mercy is a wonder. It's a wonder to me. I have found that the more one understands how lost we were, the more we find the beauty of mercy. It's the very first thing God did for us, as far as we were to know. It was an act of mercy. And guess what, folks? We have it still today. We have it. Jude says. We have it. It's ours. It's a gift from our Heavenly Father. He never took it back. He gave it to you and it's yours. Now hold on to that. Alright, you got it? Mercy. Another thing to hold is peace. Let's put that one in our hands while we're thinking about it too. Irene is the Greek word. I love, love that word, Irene. It comes from the... Simple root I-row, I've told you this before, it's when two things are put together correctly. They operate in the fullest measure of what they're designed to do. They're efficient, they're productive, and they work when things are put together right. If you don't have it put together right, it's not going to work right. It might operate, but it might be the noisiest, inefficient thing you've ever had. Take your gear and put it out of place in your transmission. Drew could tell you about uh, maybe what that might sound like. Nasty sounds. All kinds of little metal fragments splintering all over, teeth being broken off. Because it's not right. It's not right. You know the difference. You start your car and it makes a noise like that. You say, something's not right. You may not know what it is, but you know it's not Right? This little Greek word is the root of peace. Peace is where God puts it together right. And we all know from my earlier description, we were not right with God. We were not right with God. That's why we couldn't please him. That's why he wasn't pleased with us. All we were were noisemakers that annoyed him, no doubt, with what we were attempting to do apart from him. But we read in places like Philippians 4. You've heard verse 6 and 7 before. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's a precious passage to learn and to know. Because in this world, everything's not right. Right? But when you are walking with Him, and you're not anxious about these things, but you're devoting yourselves to prayer, and you're seeking Him with a thankful heart, and you're letting Him know what you need, guess what? Things are right. They're right, even in the midst of a crazy world like ours. It goes beyond comprehension. Have you ever seen that or felt that? Somebody who has peace in the most terrible situation all around them? Why? Why? They must have spent time with the Prince of Peace. D.L. Moody in his Bible had in the margin written out these words This is ours when we worry about nothing, pray about everything, and thank God for anything. I said, Well, that's pretty clever. These are ours when we worry about nothing, pray about everything, and thank God for anything. You know what he's talking about, you know what he means. But here's what I want to add to something like this. This peace is not elusive. It's not something that's way out there and you're going to try to find it and grasp it and maybe you can catch up to it. Who knows? Some people think it's hard to find and it's hard to keep. What Jude is telling you, and you're saying, where are you getting all this, Pastor? Hang on there. But Jude is telling you in verse 2, you already have it. You have it. You have this peace. How do I know that's true? Because every believer does. What does it say in Romans five one? You probably haven't memorized. Give you a clue. Romans. Does that help? There's a lot of verses in Romans now. Therefore, does that help? Being justified by faith, we have peace. There it is. With God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is that thing when it's put together right. Who did it? God did. We have it with our God. Do you understand that? We have it with our God. Not by our doing. No. But through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have it. It's ours. You say, but doesn't it say justified by faith? Isn't that something we're going to do? justified by faith, justified, how much did you do in justification? Nothing. Justification means that we are not guilty. That's an amazing doctrine to study. Not guilty. And that is because of the blood of Jesus, not because of you or me. You see, our new position outside these prison walls is that we have union with God Himself, We have a relationship with Him. We have peace with Him. He's made us right. That's a far cry from where we started. I'm sure glad He did it. Do you understand this? Peace is something you have. It's yours. Because God made it so. And He's able to do it, by the way. Put that in your hand and hold on to it. Just like you're holding to mercy today. And let me give you one more. You need a third hand. Love. The third word is love. Yes, it's the word agape. Devotedness. Value. Some of the words that go along with it. We try to define this word so many ways. In one form or another, the word love appears in the first three verses of Jude. Twice he deals with the word beloved. It must be important. You know, when love is absent, men outside the true church lack evidence that we are indeed disciples of Christ. Do you know how important love is for a church to know and do? In the last words that Jesus gave before he went to the cross, he was speaking to his disciples in John seventeen sixteen and such. You know the passages. He told them this command, love one another. Why? Because he was tired of them wrestling their way to get the best seat around the table. Constantly talking about who's the greatest of them. Have you ever seen all those things that they're doing in Scripture? And there always seems to be falling on their face. They say the wrong things at the wrong time. They're fighting with one another. They can't heal a single person. And Jesus comes and says, how long am I going to be with you? Those kind of things are just frustrating. Whereas you read the the gospel records, you say, these are the disciples? And he says, love one another. They were more content with laying around a table with dirty feet than loving one another. Jesus made that point, didn't he? At the table. He told them love one another. And was it because they were just rascals. And they needed that kind of attention. Maybe part of it. But in John 17. This is what he said. Verse 21 and 23. As he prays to the father. He says that they may all be one. Even as you father are in me. And I in you. That they may be one. And be in us. So that the world, listen, so that the world might believe that you sent me. And in verse 23, John 17, I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. The formula in those passages is real simple. The world, for whatever reason, needs a visual of the love of God. It needs a visual. Guess who possesses it? The church. We must show it to one another. We must show it to one another. Now that's it uh, works in every way that we know that makes things useful and profitable and flows well among us and all those factors we know. But to fail in this is to leave the world without the evidence that we can visibly show them That the Father sent the Son. Would you call that important? Yes! Do we want to be accountable for such a lack of evidence? I don't think we do. This is not some random rabbit trail. The point is simple. And I could take you to passage after passage if necessary. But we have the love of God. Do you know that? We have it. We possess it. Not from our own manufacturing. Not from our own work. We didn't earn it. He even loved us while we were yet sinners. He loved us enough to send His Son to die for us. I call that a pretty impressive display of love. So take what I'm telling you this morning. As simple as this is. We have mercy. We have peace. We have love. Now... What does Jude talk about here in verse number two? Is he saying go out and find it? No. He's not saying that. He's not saying go manufacture it. Go grow up and figure out what it is. He's not saying that. What does he say? What's his one desire? Look at it. Verse two. What's the verb? Multiplied. Multiplied. Now, you know what? I'll tell you the truth. I'm not real great at higher mathematics, okay? I was thankful it wasn't a job requirement in this. Well, I made it to geometry, and I said, these people are crazy. It didn't make sense beyond that point. It didn't make sense in geometry either, but other than that, I did learn this, though. If you're multiplying and you start with nothing, guess what you still have? Nothing. You can't multiply something you don't already have. Hasn't that been my point all morning? You have it. You have it. You have it. Because he says, multiply it. That's what he's calling you to do. Not go out and find it. You already have it. Oh, that it might just increase, Jude says. Fill it up. Make it full. Build a storeroom and pack it in. The, but aren't you getting greedy, pastor? Isn't this kind of selfish to concentrate on all these things we have and get more, get more, get more? No, the point is real simple. You ready? This is our supply we need if we're going to go out into a sinful world to help that world in its need. You have what it needs. Do you hear? You have what it needs. It's as if Jude is talking to the believers and saying, build up your supply because you need to distribute this to other people. That's where it comes into its many uses. Point number two was real quick, wasn't it? Point number three, many uses. You might have noticed this. Try it if you want. See if I'm right. When the car tank is empty, you don't go anywhere. You want to practice that one? I don't think so. The many uses we're talking about here at the end of this book. The book of Jude, when you jump to the end, what were we told to do? Verse 22. Have mercy on some. Where are you gonna get that? Say, well, I, 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 you already have it. Don't you? Yes. What are you supposed to be doing with your mercy? Increasing it, increasing it, increasing it. Why? Because that is a tool you need if you're gonna help others. Have mercy on some. That's exactly where you're gonna take it and distribute it. You're going to go to those who don't have it because you possess it. You have it and you're letting it build. I've already had mercy. Yes. I'm multiplying mercy. Yes. And now what? Dispense it. Dispense it. I knew a man, I've told you about this, I'm sure, who had a lot of strained relationships with other believers. I talked with him many times over the, the years and, and talked about his resistance, really, to make things right with some of these people. He would often boast about how great the Lord had been merciful to him, but he never seemed to want to dispense it to others, especially those that hurt him. So I told him once that he was willing to receive God's mercy by the truckload, but he dispensed it with a teaspoon The passage says in verse 2, my paraphrase, fill your tank. You have it. Fill it. Let it grow. Take the mercy you've been given. Take the peace that made you right with God. Take the love that binds you to the Heavenly Father and give it out to those who are doubting. I'm going to get to this passage in depth later, but I'm going to suggest to you verse 22 and 23 are not unbelievers. Alright? That's coming. They're not unbelievers. Pour it out on them. Reach them. Snatch them out of the fire. Dump it liberally on some with fear, hating even the garments polluted by the flesh. You don't have to worry about using up your supply. Why? Why? Because it wasn't yours in the first place. Whose is it? It's God's mercy. You share with him. How much does God have? (laughs) It says in Ephesians, he's rich in it. Use the supply. It's God's peace that you give. Are you ever going to use it all up? Not likely. Because it's his peace, not yours. It's God's love that you show. Guess what? That's not yours. That's his. And he says, show it, because his supply is unlimited. He is able, hear it? He is able to keep giving and giving and giving and giving to you, because he is able, and he's been doing it every single day, hasn't he? So like I said, so many weeks in a row here, go. Go. Go with the confidence that the Lord is with you. Go with the confidence that he's got everything secured for you in the future. Go with the confidence he's given you everything you need in your identity and in what you possess in your hand. Go with it, he says. Almost like he's pleading. Why are we waiting? Go. Go. There are people who need the Lord, right? Have you met him? You have a treasure in you. You have it. Share it. Because God is able. Anytime you look at yourself in evangelism, you're going to fall over on your face. Because evangelism is built on you. Anytime you go out to speak for him in his power, in his name, by his strength, by his wisdom, trusting him for the whole thing, with his words, that's the power of God that changes lives. There's a difference. There's a difference. And God is able, folks. If he's able to save you, he's able to save them too. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. And then dispense it. Heavenly Father, what a passage this is before us. What a powerful, powerful thing you've done work through our callous hearts. So often we hesitate to follow through because we're afraid or we're looking to ourselves and not looking unto Jesus. We forget who we are, what you have given to us. We go out as if we're empty-handed and yet we're not. We've been given everything we need for life and for godliness. We've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. And when you say to go, you don't send us out empty-handed and without a purpose. Lord, all this comes down to whether or not we're willing to be a vessel for you. Just a channel that you may work through us. By your power, by your wisdom, by your word, by your grace, by your mercy, work through us to bring one more soul to you, we pray. Give us a heart's desire for this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.